Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, reaction from Canada's political leaders as the votes continue to be counted in the United States. As everyone knows, there is an electoral process underway in the United States. We are, of course, following it carefully and will continue to as uh, the day and the days unfold. Uh, the Conservatives call for more clarity on the government's finances. We're now seven months into the fiscal year and we don't know the deficit, we don't know the spending levels. We've had, we haven't had a budget in a record 18 months. And the NDP proposes a tax on the ultra-wealthy. There are people that are winning. The ultra-rich continue to make massive profits. They profited off this pandemic. The richest Canadians made record profits. And, and the thing that, that I, I put to the Conservatives and the Liberals is that to do something about that, we have to tax the wealthiest. It's Thursday, November 5th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us. Morning, Mark. And I'm sure you, like everyone else, uh, you've been watching the numbers as uh, they unfold in the United States. It seems to be pointing towards a Biden victory in the Electoral College. Uh, there will be, of course, legal wranglings that will follow that, and it may take a lot of time to sort all of that out. Uh, but does it appear to you as though Joe Biden is on his way to victory in the United States? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem as if that, there can be any other outcome. I mean, you look at the various states that are still in play from uh, Arizona, which at least two news organizations have already awarded to, to Biden uh, with its 11 votes. Nevada, with, with six, would take him to 270. Uh, Pennsylvania, obviously, if he wins that, would take him through 70 with, with 20 electoral college votes. And surprisingly, at least, uh, Georgia is still very much in play. And I think that's 16 votes. So there are a number of ways that he can get through 270. It looks inevitable that, that uh, you know, at least one, two, three of those states will come come down in his favor. So, uh, you know, he's he was very cautious when he came out yesterday and, and started saying, I'm not here to declare victory, but once all the vote, votes are counted, we will be the winners. So, I mean, you don't necessarily, well, I guess Donald Trump did do that, but I, I think people would have more confidence in Biden declaring himself the winner than Trump. Yeah, and you can, there seems to be more confidence in the Biden camp and more desperation in the Trump camp. Um, so what do you think all this means for Canada? Uh, there is, obviously, Joe Biden is going to have a lot of domestic politics to deal with, and he will be governing a country that is divided if he becomes president. Uh, there is, uh, obviously, uh, there are, there's a lot more support for Donald Trump than many people thought there was a week ago, and, and that's going to be a factor over the next four years. Um, some people are already talking about Trump running again next time, and, and it's still dominating the Republican Party in the interim. Uh, so what do you think all of that means for Canada? What will a Biden presidency under those circumstances look like? Well, I think it looks like the Senate is going to stay Republican, which clearly limits uh, Biden's room for maneuver. I mean, I think that, you know, for example, Keystone XL pipeline, which he had threatened to kill, uh, whether that can be done or whether much of his uh, climate change agenda can be brought in uh, if he's got a hostile Senate. It must be open to question. I mean, I think... Whoever was going to become president, either Trump or Biden, they were going to be more protectionist 
than we've seen in the past. I mean, I think the, the COVID uh, pandemic has, has has meant that uh, countries, most countries, are reining in their their horns, including Canada, trying to become more self-reliant, more resilient, build more things at home, including vaccines, personal protective equipment. I mean, we're seeing that here, and I think it would be amplified in the United States under either man. And I think, you know, Biden's talked quite explicitly about by American. So, you know, Canada has got to prepare itself for for a world where, a post-pandemic world, where we're already, if not decoupling from China, we're at least diverging from China. And I think this is to some extent of the US because it's just not going to be the same world that we were we were living in pre-pandemic. And more broadly, what do you think this means uh, in terms of geopolitics? Uh, I, I know people are, are portraying this election as evidence that America is crumbling, that that this we're approaching the end of the American era. Uh, what are your thoughts on on how this impacts the world? Well, I think that idea that America is crumbling is premature. And I, I do think that there will be major implications for the world because clearly one of the things that Trump was doing was, was uh, a unilateral policy, more isolationist, wasn't taking part in multilateral fora like the UN, withdrew from the Paris climate agreement. I mean, I think that we're going to see America come back on the world stage. I think that the alliances which which have been sort of hanging by threads when you when you look at uh, things like NATO, alliances that are forming in the Far East, you know, Canada and the UK and Australia and New Zealand have been almost as one in making statements on things like Hong Kong and the US has been doing its own thing. Well, I think that now we will see a much firmer alliance build to try to contain China, an alliance that will include India and Japan, but but it will be led by the U.S. And I think that we have not seen the U.S. taking a lead internationally in the last four years. And I think that's a welcome development. I think it goes without saying that a Trudeau administration uh, will will find it easier to work with a Biden administration in the United States than, than Donald Trump's White House. Uh, but are there potential sticking points for uh, for for Justin Trudeau with Joe Biden? Are there issues on which they may not agree? Well, I think there are always minor issues, but I mean, let's remember that uh, Trudeau invited Biden for a state visit in December 2016, I think, after Trump had been elected. I mean, it looked like a colossal mistake at the time. It was going to irritate Trump, but it looks very prescient now. Well, I'm sure it was, it was no... Uh, foreknowledge that uh, that Biden was going to run, but there's a relationship. I mean, it's going to be as comfortable as an old pair of slippers for Trudeau to get along with Joe Biden. I think it's um, very fortuitous that that that, uh, relationship was formed long before Biden was a presidential candidate. And I think that Trudeau and his his folks have kept in very close contact with Obama. It is going to be a very natural fit for uh, Trudeau to get on with with Joe Biden personally. But obviously there are always areas of friction. And I think that the the protectionist element, the idea that Biden is going to be very pro-Bi-American is going to cause problems. But at least those problems will be resolved by rules-based organizations. You know, there, there, there are going to be rules that are going to be respected. And when they're not respected, they will go to di- clear dispute resolution uh, panels. All of that has been 
absent in the capricious nature of policy making over the last four years. Yeah. All right, let's turn to a couple of Canadian stories quickly. Um, of course, all, every, everything else is overshadowed by what's going on in the United States as the votes are counted. Uh, but yesterday, the Parliamentary Budget Office released a couple of reports uh, criticizing the Trudeau government for not providing information on billions of dollars in planned federal spending. Uh, the opposition, of course, seized on that. Uh, should the government be doing more to share information about how money is being spent? Well, I think there's no doubt. I mean, Parliament has to authorize this expenditure. Now, it did so in the case of the COVID spending because it's deemed to be an emergency. And while all the items were not uh, itemized, you know, there was a, a measure of faith that that the spending would be purely on COVID-related matters to alleviate the the, uh, the suffering and, and of, of everyday Canadians. The second report that came out was on pay equity and said that there's no, there's not enough information on how uh, how much money is going to be spent on that. The, the PDO estimated somewhere around six hundred million dollars, but that's only a third of the of the fed, federally regulated in, uh, institutions that are that are covered by this pay equity legislation. It all adds up to the to the fact that this government was elected on a ticket of being open and transparent, and yet its default position these days is not to be transparent. And quite often, as in this case, it claims cabinet confidences as a reason for not divulging the information, as it did in the We Charity scandal, as it's done, uh, it did in the uh, SNC Lavalin scandal. You know, it just it works by the the maxim of if people don't know what we're doing, they don't know what we're doing wrong. And that was not the original deal. When they were elected, it was going to be open by default, and it has not been open by default. All right, and finally, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, is trying to bring to the House of Commons a bill that would, a proposal that would tax the wealthy more heavily and also increase taxes on companies that have profited during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, do you think there is an appetite for that? There's there's a lot of talk about how people's attitudes have changed during the pandemic. Do you think there's an app an uh, an appetite for that sort of change? There probably is. I mean, the polls suggest there is, and, and and maybe the conservatives might go against type and even advocate for this. I mean, they are now uh, Aaron O'Toole is now trying to woo the blue collar vote by saying that you know unions are, are important. We should foster their development. So, you know, maybe the Conservatives will have an appetite for this. The Liberals certainly do. It was in the in the throne speech. They uh, they want to reduce wealth inequality. They proposed at the last election a tax on luxury goods, which they've done nothing with. So so maybe that there's a a way through here. They they certainly want want the NDP support in their upcoming fiscal updates. So maybe by including some kind of measure this would give the NDP cover to support that budget. The problem for the Liberals is that the last time they tried to tax wealth, which was the, the small business tax, it didn't go very well for them. You know, so I think that they've got to be very careful about any kind of taxation that they bring in that raises the level of the, the amount that the state takes as against what, what people earn. I mean, you know, I think most former chancellors would say any time that you're t- taking more than 50% of somebody's wealth, it's unfair. John Manley, for example. Even people like David Dodge, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, have spoken to on this issue, and they they think that anything over fifty percent not only is it unfair, but it doesn't work. People avoid that kind of taxation, and we're already there in a number of provinces. If you combine the 
federal income tax and, and the provincial income tax. So any f- further increases, you know, the, the kind of law of diminishing returns kicks in. This what they call the, La- uh, the Laffer curve. The more you tax, not you don't necessarily take in more money. Right. I mean, the the PBO estimated that uh, there would be five billion dollars worth of revenue from a one percent wealth tax on people earning over twenty million dollars, or turning people with assets over twenty million dollars. That is, I would have thought, is a very optimistic scenario because people will just avoid that taxation. So you know, it might seem a good thing to campaign on for for the NDP and for the Liberals. My thought on is it is is that it's uh, it's not an effective uh, right. way of raising revenue you know if you want to yeah. raise revenue raise the gst all right great stuff john thank you so much for joining us today yeah thank you mark that's john iveson of the national post how comes that the american people support so much a man who openly lies avoids paying his, tax, his taxes carries and shares prejudice against so many people. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues there is no true winner in the U.S. election. The Star writes, What was needed was a resounding rejection of Trumpism as a worldview. But almost half of American voters chose more of the same after four years of misrule. In 2016, they could plausibly argue they didn't quite know what they were getting themselves into. This time, no such excuse is available. A true democratic wave might have started to break the grip of Trumpism on the Republican Party. That won't happen now. In the Globe and Mail, Sarah Kenzior argues the election shows the United States is a broken country. Kenzior writes, The United States is a heartbreaking place to live. Dangerous times are coming full of disease, violence, and instability, regardless who is president. I wouldn't wish the pain of the next few months on anyone, including those who voted for Trump. Pundits focus on the partisanship, but there are worse things to lose than an election. Americans learned that the hard way. At Policy Options, Toby Fife and Carl Salgo consider what American politics has taught us about democratic legitimacy. They write... We tend to think of democratic legitimacy as the norm, but in fact only a modest minority of countries are fully functioning democracies. Legitimacy has been retreating in certain places, with the U.S. taking an unhappy lead. We see the slide toward populism, a decline in the independence of public institutions, the growth of a winner-take-all approach, and the declining capacity of mainstream media to support civil discourse. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. It's Opposition Motion Day in the House of Commons. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on that. Mark, today MPs will debate a motion tabled by the New Democratic Party. It calls on the Canadian government to impose a 1% wealth tax on the richest Canadians, including the country's billionaires, who have increased their net worth by an estimated $37 billion during this pandemic. The motion also calls on the earnings from that 1% wealth tax to be invested in income security programs, in expanding health care, including a national pharmacare and dental care program, and in implementing a right-to-housing policy in a pandemic recovery program. It's an ambitious motion, but which makes the point that not everyone is being affected the same way by the rigours of this pandemic. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the President of France, before delivering a statement in the House of Commons to mark Veterans Week and Remembrance Day. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet 
will hold a news conference in Ottawa. Small Business Minister Mary Ng will speak at the virtual trade mission to South Korea. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will announce the creation of an organization aimed at strengthening the pork sector. Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan will make an announcement at the Marine Renewables Canada 2020 Fall Forum. And Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson will make a virtual announcement regarding ecosystem health and Atlantic salmon recovery. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, November the 5th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.